Hey crew, welcome to another episode of the Skipper Report. On today's episode, I'd like to welcome a good friend, Keith Rodney. Keith is the head coach of the United States Telemark team, and he's a carpenter and a sailor. He's a lifelong outdoor sport enthusiast, a lot of things that we have in common. So go grab yourself a beer, sit back, kick your feet up, and enjoy the next episode. All right, so let's get this started. So, uh, yeah. who are you, man? Um, uh, I'm uh, Keith Rodney. I am the head coach of the U.S. Telemark Ski Team. And? I'm also a yeah. PSIA examiner, which is uh, uh, one of the testers or educators for the professional ski instructors of America. Um, I'm an all-around telly guy trying to uh, spread the turn. Spread the turn. Do you consider yourself a defender of the term, like Josh Madsen says? I take the cue from him for sure. Right on. Um, if I can convert the whole planet, I would. And and so why why are you a preacher of genuflecting skiing? You know, it's weird because I didn't start off as a, uh, a as a flexor of the knee. Uh, I really started off in, Al- in the alpine world, and for fun, I hopped on a pair of teleskis one day, and uh, I had a lot of fun with it. And so in order to push my skills, I kept taking tests because there wasn't anyone around me to learn from. Ah. <laughs> so when- and that, wor- that world was uh, always more accepting of my weirdness. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And that that's the big one. Uh, you know what? That, um, that's good because I don't know if you know of Jarl Berg out in Oregon. I do. Yeah. So he, when we were doing some beer things last spring, he, he called it uh, gear, beer, and anything weird. So, yeah, telemark and weirdness, is uh, they go hand in hand, that's for sure. Yes, they do. And my, my favorite one is, uh, so there's a lot that are kind of, Wait, I'll, get, I'll grab mine drink. Um, I'm still driving around, so mine's not going to be a beer yet. Oh, yeah. See, we were supposed to do this when Keith was at his woodworking shop. And uh, we we're, were going to be having beer, but I guess his plans changed a little bit. He's just come well, off the – you just came off the ski hill, right? I just came off the of skiing at Haystack. Right. Um, in the southern Vermont area, we I didn't have a lot of access to – uh, other tele skiers to uh, <clears throat> improve my skills. So I. Uh, How long ago was this? To, what year? Uh, 98, okay. 99. All right. And so I started taking some PSAA, some instructor courses, because the Alpine side is kind of a thing we do. Um, and uh, I got sucked in pretty good with a gentleman named John Tidd. Okay. Um, the grandmaster of telly. <clears throat> and uh, so through that, the telemark side has al- <clears throat> always been more accepting of my weirdness, like I mentioned earlier. Right. And I kept going, and they kept saying, cool, keep going with it. And that brings me to being the head coach on the U.S. telly team. Nice. <clears throat> and, and that's how we met, because I remember uh... – Tabby Friedman had put out something on Facebook a few years ago about your um, training camp. And so and I, we had uh, the two Keiths and me, so two tall guys and a short dude. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and it, it was quite the drive. I'd never been down to Mount Snow. It took me 10 hours to get there. And I know uh, Scott Miller, who's also on the team, he, yep. uh, he lives – uh, maybe 50 miles away from me, but it takes about four hours to drive there because we got this gigantic body of water between us. Oh, I know. Yeah. <clears throat> and flying cars don't exist yet. Yeah, yeah. But but it was kind of funny. There was an accident on uh, on the road going over. What's what's the town right south of? Is it Wilmington? Or yes. Okay, yeah. So we were heading towards Wilmington, and we were going over uh, the mountains, and we got stuck. Because uh, there was a crash somewhere, and we realized when we were talking, we were about a hundred feet apart <laughs> in this traffic jam on this mountain road. Yeah, so it was pretty funny. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. But no, that's pretty good. I, I was saying they would talk about weirdness. 
<clears throat> Tabby had invited people down there, so I inquired about it. I figured it out while I showed up. And my kids are like, who's this person you're going to ski with, Dad? Or, or stay with? And I said, I don't know. Her name is Tabby Friedman. I just bring my sleeping bag, crash on her couch. And and uh, my, my wife, Sean, goes, yeah, remember, your dad's a telemark skier. They're all weird. <laughs> yes, we are. I've been to many events where I've slept in my truck. Oh, have you? I haven't slept in my truck yet. I haven't. Well, but I fit along those side. I can go sideways in my truck comfortably. You can't. Well, you you know what? You would like my new truck. I have a 2019 uh, Super Duty diesel, and they oh, made wow. they made the back area uh, wider. So when I flip the seats up, I think I could almost squish a twin size bed back there. Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. I was like, "Whoa, man! There's so much room in there." So it's uh, yeah. I carry a lot of tools and. Uh, Lots of room. So um, yeah, yeah, I had to upgrade my truck as well. Oh, did you? Yeah. So instead of the big blue uh, Ford, I uh, now have a large black Chevy. My problem is the bed's a little short. Right. Uh, for skis, not much. Right. They touch the tailgate. And those are your skis. Yeah, uh, those are my skis, and they're not my race skis. My race skis have to go at a slight, a slight angle to oh. work. It's like, oh. So our listeners don't uh, know us. I'm six foot six, and how tall are you, Keith? <laughs> I'm five five when I'm in my gear. <laughs> no, I'm so I'm five five, but I I make sure I have a lot of lifts in my equipment, so I look five eight. Oh, I see. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not a. I don't hit my head on things. No, no, no. <laughs> I was going to ask you, like your sports background, growing up, what sorts of sports did you do? Um. So what's weird is, although I've always been really, when it comes to physical activities, I've always been very quick to pick them up. Yep. Um, but I really wasn't a dominant. Uh, I didn't like people to tell me what to do. Right. So I, I didn't actually spend much time. I played uh, softball or baseball as a kid. Right. Um, and then American soccer. Uh, but that's stuff you just you're forced into doing whether you want to or not. Everyone had to do it where I was. Right. <laughs> uh, I played football for eleven hours. <laughs> American football for eleven hours. And... See, the problem with American football is I didn't like the idea of a guy with a helmet hitting me in the head when I could when I was much stronger and could throw him out of the way. Right. But you weren't allowed to grab the helmet and throw them around. Maybe you should have tried out for the WWE. Well, in college, I went on to uh, – I played uh, college rugby for uh, three years. Oh, there years. you go. Yeah, you know what? There's a huge difference between American – North American football and rugby. You know, my girls played rugby, and it's not such a collision sport as football. It's more grappling and dragging. There are some oh, horrendous yep. crashes, but uh, – Yeah, I, I would say the men's rugby is less dragging, but plenty of grappling. Right. The women I've watched, they, oh man, they drag around each other. It's hardcore. Yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, both my I girls would, loved uh, loved rugby. Yeah, the, uh, but outside of that, um, friends and I, just because of uh, proximity, didn't live near each other. Right. Went to school together, but didn't live near each other. And because we, we didn't like to depend on our parents, we used to ride a uh, road bike a lot as oh, kids. Yeah. yeah. Um, like a couple hundred miles a week, right? Wow. wow. Uh, and nothing formal. Uh, just, you know, we'd go and spend, uh, three hours on a bike, yep. eat, uh, each buy a, ho a whole large pizza right. and then ride home. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what you do when you ride. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, going out of 17, my, uh, my dad's like, Hey, let's try skiing. Cool. And. That takes me to right now. Wow. Um, I went from uh, skiing as a, a general public for three years, and then I started teaching, and uh, I went from 50 days the first year to like 60, 70, then I've been doing 100 plus since. Wow. That's um, incredible. So whereabouts did you grow up as a kid? Um, so I grew up just outside of Boston. Okay. Um, in a little town called Weston, Mass. 
Okay. Um, Where's that in relation yeah, to Worcester? Worcester is, Weston is 20 minutes outside of Boston, and Worcester is 45 minutes out of Boston. Both are due west of right. Boston. Okay. Um, I went, yeah, better oh, to think about it is there's Worcester and Boston. Everything else doesn't really matter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I uh, a long time ago, went down and took a uh, Cycle America bicycle leadership course, and it was in Worcester. So, yep. Yeah, it was kind of cool. It was a nice area. I have cousins who yeah. are, they used to live uh, just outside of Manchester, New Hampshire, in Goffstown, and we took our kids down to the aquarium in Boston and toured around the area. It's pretty nice down there. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my dad uh, lived in Boston, so I spent a fair amount of time in the city there and uh, can't stand the city. Right. But uh, um, one time a year since I used to – oh, you know what? I forgot all about this. So used to race sailboats. Oh, okay. That, yeah. So my teenage years spent a lot of time racing, uh, mostly big boats. Yes. So I was kind of the, uh, in the sailing world, rail meat. Yes. Uh, I was the guy that you, you hang over the edge and, uh, you know, use them as uh, meat on the side of the rail to help keep the boat flat. I was one of those guys. I raced, uh, I, I always sailed dinghies. I learned, uh, I had to take a course when I was in university for phys ed, which was outdoor ed. Uh, or the, yep. Yeah. And uh, part of it was sailing, canoeing, kayaking, that sort of stuff. And I really enjoyed sailing. So at the cottage, we got a small dinghy. When I moved here to Port Hope, one of the supply teachers, he had a wet skins jacket on. And I was like, do you sail? Uh, he goes, yeah, we crew. And I said, hey, I sail too. And I got on a crew. So I, I uh, flew the head sail on the port side of this boat. We had a 44-foot uh, CNC. And, uh, yeah, I was rail meat, and uh, when we were running downwind with the spinnaker on, they told me, do not move. Go sit up close to the mast, because <laughs> they could not believe how much a person could affect the boat <laughs> when I walked on it. Yep. You know, I never, uh, comparatively, uh, you know, so I'm in the 180-pound range. Back then, I was 165 pounds. Right. <clears throat> um, I'm just better looking now. That's what it is. Uh, <laughs> it's the gray um, hair. It's the gray hair. You're wise, yeah, yeah. wiser looking. Looking, just looking. <laughs> but the, uh, uh, because I was a little lighter and a lot stronger, right? Um, pound for pound, quite a bit stronger than somebody who's normally that size. Um, I got to move around a lot on the boat. Right. So I was, uh, I was usually the uh, primary head sail trimmer on the boat, just in case our audience doesn't know the head sail is the front triangle. Um, but because of you're not allowed to do everything on the boat, <laughs> we had other guys. I was not the downwind guy. That was the upwind guy, which I thought was more fun anyways. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I always remember the first regatta I got, I, we were racing in was in Toronto. It was the National. And uh, I could not believe how close bows and sterns got as we're jockeying to cross the line. You know, you're just waiting for the gun to go and you know you're turning back and jogging and i was like holy shit <laughs> this guy's like right on us uh the we were racing from newport to bermuda wow uh oh yeah hardcore and so we're i don't know 15 hours offshore doing uh 40 knots which that's you're flying yeah so it's the whole, so for the audience, just in case they don't know, boats have a, a speed at which is optimal for them. And when you move beyond what the hull is designed to handle, the boat starts to vibrate because water gets, air gets between the water and the hull. Right. And so the boat vibrates. So our boat was doing that. We're at 40 knots. The boat's designed for 35. <laughs> and we did that for five hours wow and we got off the, it was this you got used to it when you got to land again you're just like this is a weird sensation yeah <laughs> you know what we we would race out in lake ontario we'd go down to kingston and they'd have this uh uh regatta it was held out of the olympic harbor and i got land sickness we'd be out on the water so much we come back in and i'm like <laughs> i can't walk <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there are worse things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, falling down and laying in your drool and 
<laughs> oh, I know. And actually, you know what? The sailing was uh, probably the pretty big precursor to me starting to uh, teach and coach. Oh, really? Um, yeah, the guys I used to we used to race sailboats with, part of the crew, used to teach at Mount Snow. Okay. And well, they never wanted to teach. They got the job so if they needed to work, they would teach. Right. But they got it so they'd have a pass. So they didn't have to pay to go skiing. Right. Because back then the passes were like fifteen, eighteen hundred dollars. Right. <laughs> <laughs> How much are they and, now? How much are they now? Well, you can, if you pick the right time, you can get an all veil pass for like eight hundred dollars. Right. Or if you try to buy one currently, you know, if you go early season, you can get a really good deal. Right. Right. Um, but you can five ninety nine. I think it was if you brought bought it really early uh you could ski every day but a hot what what they consider holidays right and if you want to ski on the hall i don't leave our beginner hill when it's a holiday right yeah yeah because <laughs> like, your your current yeah, I'm job because i gotta be that's <laughs> right so you, you told the listeners that you're the head coach of the u.s telemark team so what do you do as a winter job uh so in the winter my primary source of all the use the word activity since I can't really say financial stability. <laughs> uh, I teach and coach both Alpine and telemark skiing. Um, I'm at, you know, not this year, this year I'm just at Mount snow. I I've only travel uh, I've traveled two days total this year, right. but on a normal year, I will do probably 65 days away from Mount snow. Right. Um, 30 plus for the U S telemark team traveling typically one or two trips out West. Right. Um, and then a bunch in the East. And what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm trying to get athletes more access to both coaching and me. And, you know, so I, I work a lot with, so for instance, we have an athlete at, uh, Waterville Valley, which is central Northern New Hampshire. Yep. And they, uh, uh, my athlete over there who is, uh, Sam Garber, who is, uh, he's definitely the next world cup up and comer for the U S. Cool. Um, I thought you might mention Dylan there. Well, Dylan, he, uh, he's taken, uh, Dylan is a current, um, national team member who's, uh, focusing on school currently. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, as anybody knows that's into telemark, we don't do it to be financially stable. Right. So we need to have a backup plan when our telemarking doesn't earn us enough money. Right. So um, Dylan's getting his uh, master's kind of organized and and uh, stable so he can then get back into some skiing. Oh, good, good. Um, so although he's not currently racing, he well, no one is. Right. But uh, although in the last two years he's not currently racing, he is uh, still training on a regular basis. Oh, good. Um, but so I'm trying to get the athletes. So I work, uh, so Sam at Waterville, yep. he uh, has a coach up there, an Alpine coach that he works with pretty regularly. And uh, probably this year it's more, but it's usually two days a week, if not four. Right. Okay. This year it's four days a week because of, uh, well, yeah. COVID. And so he and the he and uh, me and the coach and Sam interact with each other probably once a month. Right. Um, just kind of uh, taking a look at making sure the coach is on track with what he's what he sees and what he's trying to coach. Um, so exactly how does that work when you're working with an alpine coach? Yeah. In the so, telework, because racing is racing, right? Going around gates and all that sort of stuff yeah. is is all the same, so whether the, it's Alpine or Telemark. Yeah, uh, in my mind, it really very much is. So, what the skis do in the snow is the same. Well, you know, the physics of it's the same yeah. regardless of sport. Yeah. Um, there is some mechanical differences on what happens on the inside half of the body. Teleworld is the back foot. Yeah. Um, but we're heavily focusing on the outside foot, the front foot. Right. And that's where a lot more power is coming from with Telly. Uh, and that's kind of the big emphasis there. Okay. And so 
making sure that the coach feels comfortable giving Sam the feedback. Right. It's surprising how many really top-notch coaches don't trust what they're seeing. Right. And that I, I would say that that 99% of the time it is with an upper-level coach to an uh, upper-level athlete, it is the trust when you're crossing from one discipline to another. Right. They don't trust that the feedback they're giving you is going to be right. Right. And so I, I mostly spend a lot of time reassuring the coach. Right. <laughs> and, and, and how does, how does an athlete, and I should probably ask Sam this cause he'd be able to tell me better, like their knowledge, like they have to be able to take what the Alpine coach is saying and kind of transition it in their brain and apply it to telemark. Right. Or is the coach using the terms as if you would be on the hill too? Because of the amount of alpine coaching right. I do, yeah, uh, I kind of, I mean, I talk about line in the gates, and right. that's the same regardless yeah. of discipline. Um, I talk about how the tip and the tail of the ski are tracking compared to each other. Um, what's nice though is at that higher level, I don't really need to talk about how we are managing for aft, which is our lead change, for right. Kelly. Yeah, because the athlete's you know, already there. Yeah, so the athlete's got that big level movement, and so now it's just nuance. Right. You know, when I tell tell my athlete, I need you to get on an edge a little sooner, ideally I shouldn't need to tell him how. Right. uh, At least not at Sam's level. Right. Um, So by the time my athletes make it to the national level, uh, our national team, they do have some internally driven uh, teaching skills right so they can actually they're they're starting to develop uh awareness of what they're doing and being able to adjust their own skiing right um now with our development athletes the younger kids i spend a lot of time teaching the how and you know you know basically showing them how to ski not just on the back foot but right. how to ski on the front foot as well right um you know, and we do in Alpine. It's the same thing. We, you know, we have to teach the athletes to go from the young kids how to go from two foot to outside foot. Right. Um, and Telly, it's back foot to the outside foot. Right. Or yeah. back to front, which is yeah. Because you know um, what? It's like you know, Josh always talks about it's skiing. It's just a different strategy or a different technique, and and we when you get to a certain level in telemark skiing and you're proficient. <laughs> you know how to put weight and carve that or weight that inside yeah. edge on the back foot that most novices or beginners just kind of let flop around back there. Right. Yep. Very and, much so. And it's, I would say that's owning the back foot Yeah, is the difference that takes us from a beginner to an intermediate. Right. Um, that, that, that's kind of one of the bigger elements. And that's to me, what I'm teaching not the coaching part, but when I'm teaching, that's the most fun is when you see their eyeballs go big and wide. Right. Oh, my God, that's how I stand on that foot. That's right. And it's usually in a single turn. Yeah. And then they're done and going, why the hell haven't I always been doing that? That's what I've been trying to tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, <laughs> like, I teach also, and I remember I would tell people that they have to get in an athletic stance to begin with. So I would yeah. say I would say to them, have you ever played volleyball? Receive, you know, when you're receiving the volleyball, get in that position. Or if you're a wrestler, it's like wrestle uh, ready or basketball. It's defense. So I, w- I would always take pictures or a video of them, and then I'd play it back, and they're like, oh, I need to get lower. Yeah, exactly. That's what I've been yeah, telling yeah. you for the last three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it really is. Yeah, um, and, and I use a lot of video feedback, and I, I know that you're using that a lot more now during COVID times, right? Because you're coaching athletes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're getting ta- uh, video from them, analyzing it, and then commenting and sending it back to them. While we've been on the call, I've had – uh, two athletes just submitted some more footage from uh, this last weekend. Oh, nice. <laughs> so nice. Um, now currently the U.S. team's got 38 athletes, and I get three or four athletes a week. Nice. Um, 
most of which are the same athletes. Right, right, right. Yeah. So there, there's a lot more I should be getting, but I'm not. Right. Uh, that was like school know, in the beginning of COVID times. It's like, yeah, we oh, got I these know. classes going. And up here in Canada, they said, yeah, whatever your marks were on April 1st, that's what they'll be in June. And so a lot, a lot right. of kids, they're like, yeah, why am I why am I on this Zoom call or in this Zoom class doing all this work when I already got my final marks? That's freaking great. <laughs> See ya. Exactly. <laughs> as kids, uh, as yeah. kids, we'd be out out there all the time then skiing, snowshoe, whatever. Well, I, I'm thinking that probably you and I were anyways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe on the water though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but now my biggest challenge is if I could find a state where I could hit the ocean and the snow, I'd probably never really have a job. Well, wouldn't that be Washington? Yeah, but it rains too much. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, that's at lower lower elevations because I, I remember I I had uh, gone out to uh, Sean's uh, family's um, reunion and a wedding and on Vancouver yeah. Island, and so we surfed in Tofino, or I tried, and then the next day <laughs> I was skiing Mount Baker in Washington. It was pretty rad. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'd like I would love to kind of move out west. Yeah. Um, all my family's here, and my wife said no. Right. <laughs> That's the it's the second one that was the bigger pushes. I uh, I kind of like hanging out with her. Yep. And <laughs> and the other thing is, in the East Coast, there is quite a bit more access to traveling to other ski areas without having to do plane rides or really like, you know, in Colorado, everything's at least four hours away. Exactly. Yeah. Cause you've got to go, you know, so many hours this way down and then so many hours back just to, it's like me going to go visit Scott Miller. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, you, uh, even Eastern Canada, you know, Eastern part of Canada, I would say within four hours, how many ski areas might you be able to get to in four hours? It's, it's well, a bunch and, more and, than we would oh, anywhere yeah. else. At my cottage, you know, like I'm right on the Quebec-Vermont border, and when I sit at my waterfront, I see the top of Owl's Head in behind the mountain that's on the other side of yep. the lake. 20 hmm. minutes away is Mount Orford. 50 minutes away is Jay Peak. Maybe an hour, leisurely hour south is Burke. You know, two hours is Sunday River. So I've got all the northeast covered from the cottage. And it's, you know, and it's hard to beat that. Yeah. Um, and so even, what, even a long so what, commute down to Mount Snow, which is three hours. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, three hours is just enough that you think about, you know, maybe I should stay the, stay the night. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> yep. Um, but, you know, so, so for me, three hours, I have like 70 skiers. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yep. They don't have now, to be big either, of, right? They don't have no, to be no. big. No, no, a lot of them are, are really little, little. And for the guests that are listening, I mean, my fingers barely have space between them. That's right. Yeah, because you know what? I <laughs> I didn't really grow up in the alpine world. I was a Nordic skier in Quebec. And yeah. when we moved to Ontario, there's this little hill. It was called uh, Kirby Ski Club. And uh, it has 300 vert. And uh, my sister, <laughs> I wonder if she'll <laughs> listen to this. But um, she's been retired since she was 41, and she likes to ski at the cottage in the bigger hills, ski in the Rockies or go to the Alps, that sort of stuff. One March break, we were skiing with her at Mount Orford, and she's like, yep. holy cow, are you guys ever good skiers, like even the girls? And I told her, I said, it doesn't matter where you get a turn, you know? So even though we have this. get some. That's right. And you know what? We At one point, we had three boys in the Snowboard World Cup out of our little hill. So, yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, I always say, even in town, when it's a snow day, it's been snowing heavily and the buses are canceled, the kids all know Mr. Woods is going home to get his gear and do some turns at lunchtime because there's this perfect (laughs) pitch on the side of a road with trees as gates, and I usually figure eight them, and they go home at the end of the day, and they're like, yep, you were out skiing in town. Yes, the uh, uh, but it's so I uh, so I work for the Professional Ski Instructors of America. It's the ski teaching body for the U.S. Yep, and I'm uh, telemark, but I'm also one of the kids experts. Right. 
I use, yeah, me being an expert, I use that loosely, but it's a, uh, um, so we teach and educate and certify people and children, right. uh, to teach, uh, multiple sports. And so I'm on the road, probably 20 days traveling to different ski areas for that. Nice. And of those 20 days, I typically, they're outside the hour and a half mark by probably a third of them. So I'll spend three or four nights away from the wife. Right. Um, getting paid to do that where they hook me up with lodging and <clears throat> just, well, cause I'm earning, you know, you know, I'll have not this year, but normally 10 participants, um, okay. looking to get either certified or, uh, educated, uh, or improve their education in, uh, children's. Right. <clears throat> uh, telly. No, I, I kind of try to, we all have these locations. We want to go for the telemark, uh, teaching events. Right. And we all fight over the ones that have the best snow. <laughs> <laughs> so which which uh, hills, mountains, uh, where you live? Because Keith lives in uh, Dover, Vermont, right? Yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, well, technically Wilmington, but it's the same community. Oh, okay. Uh, it's in the hills. There's two, towns, there's two towns a mile apart from each other. Right. Um, back when carriages were around. Uh. But the... Uh, um, so Dover's where the ski area is. Wilmington's where the grocery store is. Right, right. <laughs> um, so I am six miles from Mount Snow. I am three miles from Haystack, but you can only you either get invited to Haystack or uh, you have to buy a private membership. Okay, so you guys uh, actually have some of these private clubs like we have up here around Toronto. Yeah. Um, and then I'm, uh, let's see, 24 miles. I'm 30 minutes from Stratton's, a little further north. Right. 45 minutes from Bromley, 46 minutes to Magic. Okay. Um, 65 minutes to Okemo. Okay. All right. That's cool. So you're... Sorry, I, I've done it a lot. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's like some of the drives that I've had to do early in the morning when we were running races up here. I know exactly, yep. you know, you arrive Collingwood, I can get there in about an hour, just over an hour and 45 minutes, you know, that's, that's our yep. main ski area. They ski off the uh, Niagara escarpment. So there's a bunch of private clubs yep. up there that were all started by different professions. From what I understand, there was, uh, yep. you know, the, like U of T, uh, medical school, that might not be oh, the yeah. actual one, but yeah, the the students and the doctors started that, or engineers might have started Blue Mountain, that sort of stuff. And then it's just kind of evolved, and there's these little communities that have grown up. People built houses around the lodges and that oh, sort nice. of stuff. Yeah. So the, you know what? The other thing that you and I have in common is woodworking, carpentry. Yes, we do. So I forget what your history is because the name of your business is Sheerness Woodworking isn't it? Or Sheerness yep. Carpentry? It, yeah, Sheerness Woodworks. Yes, yeah. it is. And or, so I remember you telling me the history of Sheerness being a ship coming over from England? Uh, yes, uh, unfortunately it did. He was, uh, so um, in the Revolutionary War for the U.S. Right. against Britain, the head of the British Navy, the ship's name was Sheerness. Right. And when the lead ship is, uh, when it's the lead ship of a Navy, it's kind of a tradition, not necessarily by country, just kind of by the water. It's named for the town it was built in, which was Sheerness, England. Correct. Yeah, because I did a little bit of research just to make sure that I could remember what you told me. Yep. And it's, uh, it's very clear. And so the HMS Sheerness. Uh, was built in Sheerness, England, and my ancestor, Caesar Rodney, was the Royal Admiral for the British Navy of the largest Navy in the world, the most number of ships in the world in history. Right. Now, granted, they're all sailing ships, Yep. and they were using basically BB guns <laughs> and steel balls to That's shoot right. each other. That's right. Uh, Gunpowder was not really used like it is now. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah you know what? Me uh, being a phys ed teacher and I would be teaching shot, but I told, I would tell the kids it's called shot 
because it's what is shot out of a cannon. This is what you would get hit with. Yeah. Yeah. At about 200 miles an hour. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But the, uh, uh, so my ancestor uh, sailed their fleet over to the, uh, what is now the United States, but the Americas and his cousin, Mike, you know, his cousin was the commander or in charge of the America's fleet. Okay. Which according to my history was a sailing gunning, a gunner ship, you know, with cannons, Yep. a dinghy and a rowboat. As far as I can tell. (laughs) 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 So, Everything I know about that time was the British would chase yep. and we would run away really quickly. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, it's, it's amazing kinda... that some of the ships were not that big because I know, I can't remember who it was who came over to Canada in the Matthew, but they rebuilt yep. that ship and I couldn't believe how tiny it was. And it's like this crossed the ocean like way back in the day and it's like, Wow. They were, you you would not be comfortable in one of those boats. Oh no, no. Ah, uh, you know what? When I used to race on this yacht that I raced on, there was one spot I could stand in the cabin, and that's where the hatch was. That was my spot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I know um, um, the USS Constitution, right? Which is the U.S. Um, I don't know its war history, but I know. I've been on it because I live close by. It's right. parked in Boston. And so the U.S. Constitution, USS Constitution, old Ironsides. Yep. Um, the below deck, the high points in between the supports of the deck right. is six feet. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so wouldn't, I, wouldn't I, can stand, I can stand in that, but I can stand on my tippy toes and yep. touch the ceiling. Wow. And that's the, that is the, where all the cabins were. Right. <laughs> I know. I remember as a kid going to the Citadel in Quebec City, which is the fort, which was yep. part of our our battle between the French and, and the English, and uh, going through some of the stairwells and how they were made and <laughs> and how narrow they are. You could not get a right uh, – it wouldn't be a rifle. It would be a uh, – a, a gun at the time with a bayonet, you know? So That's probably a good thing. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting. I learned uh, last year, a year ago this past December, we had to go to Tampa for a wedding, and we went to St. Augustine. And at some point, the English occupied Saint, the fort in St. Augustine, and then later on, that uh, English general or colonel, I can't remember his name, was in charge of Quebec City. And I could definitely see the similarities in the design of the fort. It was kind of interesting. Yep. Yeah. St. Augustine oh, was pretty nice. cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, they, they, I, I don't think the Americans give themselves that credit. St. Augustine, they always say it's the oldest city in America, but really it's the oldest city in North America. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I think the oldest city in, in the Americas, including South, Right would be one of the Mayan ruins, or uh, or maybe the Incas, you know, kind of which predate yeah the uh, um, the Egyptians. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, eh. yep. So I think old is relative. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the U.S., it's uh, uh, in the U.S. it's Boston, and it's uh, eh. not that old. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's interesting because, like, you know, part of my my minor in my degree is history. And yep. I, I really enjoy history. And when we were coming home from Florida last year, we, we drove to Florida, drove to Tampa for a wedding. It took us five days to get there because we decided that we would crisscross the interstates and try not to go in the interstate as much. And so we did the same thing coming home. And we stayed in Virginia on the way home just outside of Charlottesville, I think. It's incredible all the rich history from the... Uh, civil war that was there like you know the number of battles that took place in close proximity to each other and the number of presidential estates where uh, different presidents grew up or where they lived and that sort of stuff it's uh it's quite incredible I, I can't wait to get back down there i'd like to get the border open yeah uh, 
I definitely would as well. I uh, I had this huge intention. We I was gonna bring was it Renee that was gonna run? Uh, uh, trying to remember who it was. Uh, um, we were gonna run it. We were gonna have a, uh, a telemark race up in Canada. Yeah. Um, right. And we were. I was gonna look, get a van full of U.S. athletes. We were gonna come up. Right. Because uh, you guys always come down to us. We were gonna come up to you guys. And I was going to time it with a Western trip. Oh yeah. To uh, uh, Holiday Valley, which uh, yeah, uh, I heard is not that far from you. No, relatively speaking. Not, well, it's three hours away, but you know, I'm a road. Yeah, I'm a road ten. warrior. Exactly. Yeah, I'm a road warrior. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? We'd get a lot of Ontario people come down to do that because uh, mm. I love skiing at Holiday Valley and Hollymont. That's in Ellicott. Well, no. Uh, what we were going to do is we're going to do a race near you. Oh, yes. Yep. And then I was also, in order to tie in some of that time, I was going to do yep. um, uh, just kind of a uh, training day at Holiday Valley yep. as well as some PSIA stuff and, and have them pay for my driving. Nice. <laughs> um, nice. And then uh, <clears throat> so all of that was going to happen this season. Right. I had it, we got it all worked out by the 1st of March last year. Right. And then, uh, I don't know, there's this whole thing on the 14th and 15th of March <laughs> last year. Yep. God damn it. Exactly, yeah. But you know what? You guys are on a little better road to recovery than we are. Oh, we're really not. Oh, yeah, you are. You're, get, <laughs> you're getting many more people uh, immunized than we are at this point. Thank God. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, I figure we hit five, uh, 500,000 deaths. We should do, we should do something right. Yeah. Well, you Killing know what? not a good thing. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. My wife used to work in public health and she's been, oh, uh, asked to come back and help out. So she's, uh, actually upstairs in one of the other bedrooms. I'm in a downstairs bedroom and, um, yep. she's, uh, she's working right now doing what she does. Cause she used to work in communicable disease and control. And, uh, oui. when this first all happened, I was like, Italy was hit hard. And I was like, I wonder what the population density of Italy is. And you know what? It's the same as the U S. And then I was like, you know, it's about 51 to 54 people per square mile. And then I was yeah. like, I wonder what Canada is for four people per square mile. <laughs> I said, this is going to be a disease of population density. And sure enough, you know, like Britain in England, uh, the, I think the entire country of England or maybe Great Britain, the continent of Great Britain is, uh, or the island of Great Britain, um, 400 people per square mile. It's like, are you kidding yeah. me? Yeah. So. Yeah, but they're this, uh, I mean, I, because Canada doesn't break that you like with the U S broken into smaller segments, states. Yes. Um, I mean, Great Britain is what? New York. Yes, exactly. The state of New York yes. is really not that big. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you look at the island of Japan, yeah. which is the densest country in the world. And I mean, there's like a thousand people per yeah. acre or it, however. Yeah. It's crazy. And now they're all in the cities. Yeah. So yeah. the countries are empty and then they're, uh, they're sleeping <laughs> on each other. Well, it was interesting. My, Sean was looking yeah. at some census stuff that it was in a, a, an article on the CBC, which is our PBS. And yep. the city of Toronto lost 50,000 people last year. They've all moved out. I just heard in Vancouver uh, the same sort of thing. You know, the young people are moving outside of the city because Vancouver is the most expensive place to live in Canada. And uh, they're yep. figuring out, you know what, we can go outside a couple hours as long as we have good internet we can work from home yeah we're, we're having a lot of that although new york city is our busy busiest right um what are they Forty seven thousand have died yeah yeah <laughs> it's like yeah i know I, I i was actually gonna take a look but i, I know the last time i looked we had i don't know seventeen thousand or twenty thousand people die in canada I might yeah. be I might be wrong, but yeah, that's our you know, and we're one tenth the population that you guys are. I know, and we're yeah, you're th uh, like three hundred and fifty million. Last I looked, uh, three hundred and thirty-one million, right? And 
I think they're in, they're in L.A. and New York. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because Montana is something like forty acres per person. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Wide open, big sky country. There, there are towns in Montana where no one is sick. Yeah. No one has gotten any disease at all. Right. And then there's, is it, I think, I think it's big sky. There are like 63 cases. Right. Right. And that's all that Montana's gotten so far. And no one, uh, but they've, they've gotten more deaths than Vermont. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's insane. I know Sean, but, Sean no, is no, from, it's, Sean it's is from time. Thunder Bay, which is not far yep. from Minnesota. And in the beginning of the pandemic, they were doing very well, and uh, now it's it's just off the hook that's up there because they have a lot of uh, homeless uh, people, and uh, it's uh, I think my uh, brother-in-law, who's a retired police officer from up there, he said I think there were like forty-six cops who had gotten infected. Yeah, like they have the yeah. same population that we have in our township or my wife's area for her public health area uh, unit, which is about a hundred and. 20,000. We have 47 cases and they have 350 cases. Yeah. So they're not yeah. doing so well up there. Yeah. It's that whole practicing. Yeah. You, you know what? Somebody that's homeless is probably doesn't have a lot of access to uh, being clean. Yeah. Yeah. Washing hands, staying away from people, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Although I bet they want to stay away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, I was going to ask but, you because I I don't I don't get to talk to you very often. Your demo team stuff. Yes. So tell it. So that is that is this year has been a good year for me practice, practice practicing that. So each country has a teaching based demo team, right? Um, which you will probably the better way to think about it is it is the best ski and our. Um, I want to say best, but it's kind of hard. So ideally they are the top ski instructors for the country that represent the country at an international event where yeah. we share education. And that would be interski. Um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's our group that we would send to interski. Yeah. Uh, Renee is doing it for, or did it for Canada. Yeah. Uh, there's others, but he's the only one I know off the top of my head. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and our tryout, which was supposed to happen last April, right. kind of got the whole big screw turned to it. Right. Um, and so they shifted it to this year. So my whole life's been on pause right? as right. I try to keep my fitness level up right. going into this year. Yeah. Um, but currently I'm getting ready to try out for the United States PSIA, uh, the, our teaching demo demo team uh, last time they had two team members participate you know we don't have a big team right uh for telemark but i'm kind of hoping they pick a few more this time just because right. the gentlemen the group that's trying out um i know them all and we could very easily take the whole group that's trying out four <laughs> and it actually would be a really really good representation of what's happening in the u.s cool we've got a west northwestern guy from um jackson hole yeah who, uh, who is currently on the team uh grant bishop right and we have a gentleman named jim shaw from colorado mm -hmm. uh, he's from winter park colorado um, and then it'd be two Eastern guys, uh, cool. Greg, uh, no, Matt, uh, Charles and myself. Cool. I, I think we send more than four people. Uh, you had six yeah. actually go to uh, the event last year. Right. I think it may be even more. Right. I mean, hell, Austria sent four. Right. <laughs> uh, now I will say, I'll, I'll say this, although I sarcastically said Austria, Austria, for the first time in history, sent Telemark to Interski. Really? And Austria is doing something that I'm kind of chiming in on and seeing how I can apply it to the U.S. So in Austria, 
all ski team athletes right. must participate in Telemark. Right. That's right. A, yeah. It's a skill building activity. Yeah. And so I'm for my tryout, we have to do an online presentation, uh, a long one and then a short one later on. And then, uh, a couple on hill teaching segments. Right. And my long presentation, which is happening next, uh, the fifth, I, next Friday, I think it is. Right. And it's going to be the benefits of cross-discipline training. Exactly. Exactly. You know what? That's what and, we do in our youth program in Ontario. We try yeah. to uh, co-opt alpine racers to cross over. And there's nothing better than teaching an alpine skier how to ski alpine style on telemark equipment. Because then they it, really it's suck. huge for their own skiing. Exactly. It's yeah. such, um, it's the, uh, although I currently have, like, I've got all the data together for it. Um, I, uh, because Professional Ski Instructors of America, their big push currently is the concept of one team, which is all disciplines. Right working together and, you know, sharing their teaching background because how we teach is consistent across disciplines. What we teach is what changes. Um, And I'm a big believer in that, especially as a telly guy. Yep. (laughs) So I'm glad that they're catching up with me. Well, you know what? We, Uh, our um, Alpine Ski Instructors Association, I think when they get to the highest level, of instructorship when they're going for their uh, that highest level, they have to take telemark. Really, really. <laughs> there's there's some ammo for you for the PSIA. Really, all right. I'll yeah. be calling. Oh, really? Yeah. Ding 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 ding. Because you know what? Go. There's there's that there's, might there's, be a little harder to yeah to sell. Well, I was gonna say there's <laughs> nothing better about learn uh, you know to learn about being centered in ski and uh, balanced on your skis than cross country skiing, you know, going, oh da- going down a pitch in floppy. Uh, it doesn't, even, doesn't need to be on a pitch yesterday. I'm on my classic skis yep. and I got the wax wrong. Oh, so my, my <laughs> wax pocket was too long right. for the condition for the really soft conditions. And I rolled off a hard track into really soft snow and my skis stopped, stopped. short <laughs> and I went careening headfirst into it. A friend of mine calls it doing the ostrich. <laughs> oh, I've been there lots of times. Even the last time I was out solo, because I've been grooming my own stuff out where my daughter lives. And I yep, was yep. like, there were some some parts I had the rack the wax right. Other parts, it's like, oh man, if I'm going down a hill, make sure it's all the right snow for the wax, because. It says stopping oh, on a dime. Yep. And what was weird? What I mean, I got it wrong. Like I didn't even try to. Like I couldn't find my wax kit. Oh. So I'm like, all right, well, I'll just deal with what I got. And I, <laughs> I think the last time I went out, it was like eight degrees, and right. it was thirty the other day. Oh wow! Yeah. And so the skis would only slide backwards. Yep. <laughs> oh, like, I hate that. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So when you go to kick, yeah. Uh, and for the audience, just in case they're not Nords, uh, the kick is what gets you going forward. Yep. So when I went to go kick, the skis would only go backwards. Yep. When I needed to glide, they'd freaking <laughs> stick on me. I'm like, ah. And that's the I worst from, going uphill. Oh, God. It's like, ah, oh, screw it. I'm herringbone. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, I mean, for those who don't know um, who are listening, as a tele racer, we spend oh 30% of the time roughly cross country skiing exactly. in our telemark race gear. That's right. And so um unfortunately in the US that's kind of our Achilles heel. Uh they all like going downhill with gravity. Right. They all kind of get a little grumpy yep. when we try to when we do the skating and climbing part. Right. Yeah. It's more effort. Yeah, up here in Canada, because I know I've gone and to be part of it as as I used to run Telemark Ski Canada, and I always thought it was part of my job just to go and see what the athletes were doing and be involved. And yeah, you know what? They work a lot on skating, like every week. Yep. They have at least one session of a few hours of skating. 
Yep. And you know the the hardest part uh, that any any real uh, higher end athlete realizes is technique can be done usually during the season. Yep. But strength and stamina can only be done off season. Yes, exactly. And yeah. that's that's the hardest part. And when cross country skiing, it's like it's a lot, a lot of aerobic activity. A lot. And it burns a lot of time. And you know, I'm no better than anyone else. Sitting on the couch is so much more fun than going out <laughs> for a four hour run. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, although I will say, there's a couple French guys that have some footage on YouTube. Uh, the Lau brothers. Oh yes. Uh, yep. Yeah. So Philip. Uh, and Those guys are monsters. Yeah. So they do this thing where they take a, a car dolly, the little cart that you lie on to go underneath your car. Yep. They kneel on it and put on work special work gloves, basically work gloves with a lot of tape, and they use their hands and climb up a hill using their hands to push with. They got that from Those, Eddie Murphy, no man. People. Remember that Probably. one movie? Uh, what was it? Something business, I think, or something like that. Yeah, it was Eddie Murphy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, um, yeah, they they do that for fitness, aerobic and strength fitness for cross country for the cross country oh, could, portion. Oh man, that's crazy! Yeah, wow. And you know, it's it's those activities that make the you know some of those athletes, some of the best athletes in the world at yeah. what they're doing. Oh, I, I've seen uh, some of their workout videos and like, man, those guys are monsters. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. And you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll kind of put a big in edge for us. Like right now on the world cup, the most winning world cup athlete in the world. Yeah. Um, as Keith knows is Amelie Raymond from Switzerland. Yes. On telemark. Yeah. Not an alpine racer, not a cross country racer. Yeah. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> and you know, so, um, so of the top five athletes that race at an international level, we have Telemark, two cross country, and then fourth and fifth is alpine. Right. Yep. Fifth is Lindsey Vaughn. So yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, it doesn't knock Lindsey Vaughn. She's the the second best alpine athlete in history. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's and I'm impressed it's a female. So the best alpine athlete and the best telemark athlete are not men, they're women. That's exactly. Yeah. Now when when you were talking about the cross country, were were you mentioning thinking of Jesse Diggins? Um I wasn't, but I for the US it is uh, just in case any anyone in that world is listening, I think she is doing beyond a stellar job. I'm so proud to have that athlete, you know, having her on the U.S. team right now. Yeah, you know what? She's killing it this year. My wife grew up with her parents. Oh, nice. They have camps <clears throat> just uh, not too far, a couple of hundred meters away from each other on Lake Superior. So we, we, um, we run into the Diggins clan a lot up there. I like the fact that I mean we don't have a big field when it comes to Olympic uh, gold medal winners, right? But we got Bill Koch, yeah, Jesse Diggins, and yep. Keegan Randall. I'll take all three. Yeah, Fantastic. for sure, for sure. <laughs> and then we have COVID. Yeah, COVID has actually done more for cross country skiing. Oh yeah, than an Olympic medal has. We you cannot find cross country skis in the Northeast. Same here of the U.S. Same here. Yeah. <laughs> Same here. Like, yeah. Well, freaking fantastic. Yeah. Cross country skiing. My wife is cross country skiing. She has not been on a chairlift yet this winter. Right. And she's skiing five days a week. Nice. Uh, you know what? I, I went out for half a day at my local hill. We had to wear a mask and I was like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't need to come back and do any downhill activities because it wasn't very pleasant. I, you know, I broke a pair of glasses, <laughs> decided not to wear a mask. I wore a bandana like a cowboy and uh, that worked better. Uh, but it's like, you yeah. know what? I'll just go out to Kieran's 350 acres, set my own trail. We've had some good snow setting trail. The snow's been like up to my knees in a few spots. Wow. Yeah. So that's waist high on me. Yeah, I was going to say you might need a snorkel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So I don't, I don't mind going out there and doing, you know, a, a few K in Kieran's field and, and, uh, yeah, it was a lot more pleasant than, it was nice to get out on, on my telemark gear and, uh, and stuff, but I, I have my leather boots. I got to get out on, I had to get some bindings from uh free heel life in Salt Lake city because my old bindings oh, nice. didn't work yep. with my leather boots. So I'll get out there. Oh and, no. Uh, yeah. They, they changed the thickness. Exactly. So the three pin bindings, um, right around, oh God, the late eighties. Yeah. They, uh, when they started introducing boots with Vibram soles. Right. Yeah. So the height of the three pin has changed. Exactly. So I had an old pair of Rotafella three pins. It didn't work. So I called down to Salt Lake city and they had, uh, they scrounged around and found, uh, old stock volley. Uh, what were they called? Mountain, mountain gear bindings. It's, I don't know. They're, they're three. Yeah, it's, it's the volley. It's their three pin. Yeah. Yeah. So I just got to yeah, take a cable or spring or nothing. Nothing. Just three pin. Oh, nice. Yeah. You know, they still, well, they still makes that three pin. Yes. So yeah, I, I you know I what? I've got on, a bit I of time. On my wall. Oh, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I have a bit of time this afternoon. I should just quickly switch things up. Oh yes, definitely. Yeah. Anyways, I'm going to let you get going on your day. And uh, uh, thank you. Thank it's you for been... being uh, part of this podcast because I think you're the fourth podcast I've done. I'm actually doing another one this evening with a young guy living north of me who's into maple syrup. Another Vermont oh, nice. product too, right? Uh, well, I don't I, – I, I like the fact that that is what Vermont is known for heavily. But I've tasted the maple syrup from all over the Northeast. Yep. Not just, you know, but in Canada, it's all pretty good. Yep. It all tastes like maple syrup. Um, I am definitely a maple syrup snob. So, so am I. If it's not, if it's either maple syrup or it's not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and Jemima is not. not. That's right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And I, but as a woodworker, so maple syrup cannot be produced outside of this environment. The uh, so it only comes from this part of the world, yep. U.S., Canada. You know, yep. you know, the Northeast, including That's right. Canada. That's right. And I, I love that. It's like because you know Norway has this huge underground seed farm where they're learning to explore vertical farming. Right. And they can, you know some of the most advanced farming in the world and they cannot produce maple syrup. Exactly. Ah. That's right. Yep. <laughs> but what it also means is we, as the environment changes, we're all screwed. Yes. Yeah. You know, we run out of maple syrup. I'm not eating more pancakes. I'm done with pancakes. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I, I don't just keep it. I, I put it in all sorts of stuff, man. I put in my spaghetti sauce. There's uh, oh, a guy, weird. Colonial Mountain Maple Syrup, I follow on Instagram. I shot him a picture of my breakfast with pierogies and maple syrup. Uh, or or I also make a um, like a sausage McMuffin for breakfast that's got egg on it uh, and some cheese. Maple sausage McMuffin? No, oh, my God. Oh, I put maple <laughs> butter on it, man. No, that's okay, too, though. Yeah. Uh, so we did a a curry chicken maple syrup oh wow just it it was just so what was it it was a uh, a teaspoon of maple syrup in a uh a four serving uh meal of curry chicken wow and it was like oh my god oh i know it's unbelievable <laughs> right it was supposed to be four servings nope <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for I being. Think I had two and a half. All right. Yeah. Thanks Thank for being very on the much show. For having me on your show. All right. You have um, a great time. Are you heading back out to the hill, or are you going into your wood shop? Yeah, I gotta go. Uh, I got a kit. I got a kitchen. I'm gonna go uh, finish off. I've got some crown molding to go play with. All right. Well, oh, geez, I hate crown molding. <laughs> oh, I really like it. Oh dear. Uh, but that's okay. That's why I charge well. <laughs> I do the same thing, and I don't like doing crown molding, so I charge enough so I don't get the job. Oh, I, I charge a lot because other people can't do the job. That's right. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you take it easy, my friend. All right, sir. All right. Thank you very much, Thanks. and have a good afternoon. Yeah, you too. All right. Bye. Bye.